Welcome to the Overdrive Outdoors podcast. Your source for coyote hunting, fishing, and more. We're calling West Texas, and we're filming, and we called 36 coyotes in one night. Two years ago, three years ago, I had in one morning six bucks that were three and a half and older within 50 yards of my stand. Six different bucks one morning. It was in October. Went made my first coyote stand, me and my cousin. And uh, very first freaking stand, guys, we called up seven coyotes. <laughs> seven coyotes. Florida itself is a fisherman's paradise. We stick out in the middle of the water, man. There's water everywhere. Let's kick it in the overdrive. This podcast brought to you by Predator Hunter Outdoors. Locally owned and operated out of Attica, Michigan, Predator Hunter Outdoors will keep you hunting when the sun goes down. Predator Hunter Outdoors has something for every budget and experience level, including lights, night vision, and thermal, as well as a full line of tripods, mounts, and predator calls. Look them up on Facebook and Instagram at Predator Hunter Outdoors, or visit their webpage at www.predatorhunteroutdoors.com. Enter the promo code LIGHT for 20% off light products, and TRIPOD for 10% off tripods and mounts. With today's technology, hunters in the field have more tools than ever to maximize their outdoor experiences. One of those tools is a Grand Rapids, Michigan-based HuntWise app. The HuntWise Pro app is loaded with features including property lines, landowner data, windcast, huntcast, over 250 map layers including 3D maps, a localized rut indicator, as well as discounts of 20% off various name brand products. Step up to the Elite membership and you will get all of that plus HuntCast 2.0 with customizable alerts, Whitetail 365 which gives you season dates and local rut times as well as the best time to plant your food plots, a 15 day hunt forecast and 40-50% to 50% discount on name brand products. Enter code OVERDRIVE for 20% off your membership to HuntWise. Hello everybody, this is Kevin Rott with the Overdrive Outdoors podcast. Thank you for joining us this week. Uh, This week we're going to continue along with um, the series that I had getting some of the OGs, as I call it, of the predator hunting world from when I first started getting into predator hunting. And today we have joining us special guest, Mr. Tori Cook from MFK. How you doing, Tori? Oh, pretty good. Um, you're, to, you're down in Arkansas, right? Right. Southeast corner of the state in a little town called Johnsville. Okay. We're 17 miles from the nearest bigger town. Okay. Well, that's a good distance. You have to deal with all the city people then. <laughs> right. I like it. I wouldn't have it any other way. Right. How's the weather treating you guys down there right now? It's actually really nice right now. It's uh, We've had some rain and some bad storms, but right now it's... It's pretty outside, cool and just right. I wish yep. it was like it all the time. What do you call cool down there? Uh, it's probably, I think this morning was upper 40s, and okay. uh, it's getting up to mid-60s during the during the afternoon. Okay. And that's not going to last long. That's kind of unseasonably cool for this far south. I think by the weekend, we're supposed to be back up in the mid-80s, so it's going to Ouch. And yeah. then we'll, I'm not Humidity. a fan of that hot weather. <laughs> oh, me, me either. I'm used to it, I guess. But the hot weather isn't too bad. It's the humidity we get down here. Does uh, it get really humid down there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it comes quick. And, 
you're sweating as soon as you walk outside <laughs> right. just from the moisture. Yeah, we um, my house is actually probably only about, well, the length of White Lake. So I'm seven miles from Lake Michigan, give or take. And we get a lot of humidity because of being close to Lake Michigan. And um, summertime, I would say highs are generally around 80, give or take. But we do have a lot of humidity here as well. Right. Yeah. So are you originally from Arkansas? Yeah, I grew up just about 20 miles from here in a little town called Goatneck, Arkansas. Goatneck? So, <laughs> Goatneck, Arkansas, born and raised. What was the sports mascot? <laughs> well, it was neighboring the town. It was right on the outskirts of Warren, which is where I went to high school, and it was the Lumberjacks. Oh, okay. So <laughs> sometimes I'll say I'm from Warren, but I grew up there on the, on the edge of Goatneck. Gotcha. <laughs> Um, let's talk a little bit about your history. Um, did you grow up in a hunting family? Oh, yeah. Yeah, pretty much everybody for both sides of my family way back hunted, you know, at least something. Now, there were some things like turkeys and even predators that um, a lot of them didn't do. They were some of them were bird hunters, small game hunters, some of my grandpas and stuff like that. But, yeah, I grew up in a in a hunting family and was introduced to it immediately you know as soon as i was far, as far back as i can remember uh, now in Arkansas, was, you guys you guys have quite a variety down there you can hunt too right um hogs deer yeah yeah hogs deer squirrels coons rabbits um you know a lot of a lot of game and a lot of different seasons and then of course now with the predator stuff they've made it year round so there's always something, and and I was pretty much into every bit of it. I started out on songbirds. Uh, wasn't right. legal, but I, I started out on songbirds. <laughs> you know, as soon as I was big enough to hold a BB gun, I was I was working on the songbirds. <laughs> when you when your family was growing up, was it you know um, to feed the family? Was it recreational? A little bit of everything. A little bit of everything. I mean, we've always hunted and for the most part ate what we hunted um you know from squirrels and rabbits and deer a lot of deer uh turkeys of course uh, so yeah we we skinned and cooked and ate most of what uh what we hunted of course we trapped and stuff like that i was introduced to trapping my dad trapped my grandpa trapped uh uncles trapped so i was introduced to trapping you know, coons, mink, uh, otter, fox, bobcats, coats, all that kind of stuff early on before I actually started calling predators. So I, I was, I trapped before I started calling. And all of this was as a child, you know, our early on, I would go run a trap line with my dad right there behind our house. We lived on the, on the edge of kind of where I guess rural area met just solid wood so you could leave my house and and continue and wind up on the saline river with no other houses or anything so i had opportunity even before i had a way to get anywhere i could just walk out of the house and do any of that stuff uh, and a lot of it early on was bird hunting squirrel hunting and then once i got big enough to set traps i was setting and running my own trap line and I ran a trap line before school and that's actually how I made my first little bit of money was running a trap line, skinning, selling furs and even selling some of the live coat and fox to some of the running pens that we have 
around here. I don't everywhere probably doesn't have it, but we had fox and coat pens, and they would buy the fox and coat live, put them in these high fence pens and dog running pens, and they would run them just to hear the dogs run. So I was exposed to a little bit of of all of that. How old are you, Tori? Forty four. Forty four. Okay, so you're just uh, well, you're about seven years younger than me. So yeah. how old were you when you got into the trapping? I mean toddler there's really? pictures of me going with my dad when you know he's carrying me and and we're there was a creek right there behind our house inside of the house and and so that's kind of where i got my start on some of the trapping stuff and it continued over it wasn't just him it was my mom too uh i credit them a lot with me being in the business and doing what i am now because daddy kind of taught me woodsmanship from right off the bat it wasn't just hunting and trapping it was i knew i was going to be questioned about everything from the time we left the house so it was learning my directions you know north south east and west reading compasses keeping my wits about me as far as you know where's the truck where's the house you know he would ask me about landmarks and of course along the way i'm learning about tracks and just any kind of animal sign whether it be even if it wasn't something we were hunting I was learning all the animal sign, the different trees, the leaves, what fruit they produced, whether it be acorns or persimmons or whatever, what animals ate that stuff. And so I, I learned a whole lot. And I think that's probably why I enjoy learning about animal behavior as much as I do hunting them. And then, of course, he would teach me all of that and ask me all the questions. We'd see a, a lot of people call them rubs. We call them call it hooking and stuff like that but where a deer had hooked a bush you know if he showed me that as a toddler the next time we were in the woods i'm gonna be questioning you know what did that when mm -hmm. we find scrapes or whatever and what kind of track is that and so on and then when i'd get back home once i developed an interest in that my mom was big on progressing that my favorite game as a kid and probably even still today even though i don't play it anymore was animal guessing game so we would she would describe animals and give me little hints and of course as i got older the hints got harder and uh <laughs> and so it was you know everything about my early life was directed at hunting and outdoors and helped develop my interest and then also as i got older and this was with sports when i got into sports or the hunting stuff Daddy was the one that I was out there doing it with and, and teaching me the woodsmanship stuff because he taught me a lot of woodsmanship stuff and he didn't hunt turkeys and stuff. There are a lot of things that I've learned, but it all goes back to those woodsmanship skills that he taught me as a child. Amazing. And then mama helped develop my, my drive and my drive motivation, uh, competitive stuff with, uh, with a lot of the rest of it, because as I got older, I played a lot of basketball, football, whatever I did, I, I would get a lot of praise, which built my confidence if I done good at stuff, but I also got critiqued. So if I shot 10 free throws and I made nine of them, well, boy, you done good. You made nine of them, but why it was going to get brought up. Why'd you miss the one? Sure. And so it was expected to, to get better at all of that stuff. And then as I started, hunting 
whatever it was, squirrels or whatever. When I went out, we had whatever our bag limit was. And I was, you know, she was pushing me to, you know, if it, at, at the time it was eight. I think it's up to 12 now here. But I would go out. And of course, I was little. I might kill two or three or four and get back in. Well, why didn't you kill all eight? <laughs> and then once I'd kill all eight, it progressed to bigger game like deer and stuff like that. And at first it was just, you know, being able to get a deer. And of course, that was a good thing. And then it was, well, you need to try to get one a little better than that. And then it, once I progressed to a teenager and really started chasing deer and turkeys and everything else, once I'd bring them back, mama was always, she would, well, she would critique me on, well, if this one had a 10 inch beard and I killed one the next time and it had a nine inch beard, well, why didn't I wait and shoot one that had a <laughs> longer spurs, bigger beard and the same thing with deer. If it was a, it was an eight point. Well, the next one better be a bigger eight point or a 10 point, you know, that kind of deal. And uh, so that I've carried a lot of that with me into the, the business side of this, the call building. And, you know, there's, uh, I guess I hear voices uh, is a good way to put it because when I'm building calls or I'm out there scouting for deer or, I'm doing stuff with the, any of the MFK stuff. I have that in the back of my mind, you know, all of those things where I'm kind of critiquing myself and, you know, it's just, uh, all of that, all of that relates back to my childhood. And I probably got to, uh, I got older before I really started tying all that back together. There was a point in time where I was thinking, well, I taught myself how to turkey hunt because daddy didn't turkey hunt and we didn't have turkeys at the time. Uh -huh. And then later on, you know, some of the things that I can, I realized where it all come from. I was able to teach myself to turkey hunt because I knew so much about woodsmanship yeah. and it just was a natural, same thing with coyotes and, and stuff like that. Uh, I was able to, I feel like I was able to make smooth transitions from one animal to the next from the trapping background, the woodsman stuff and just hunting squirrels and everything else there was to hunt. Uh, so that, that's, yeah, that's, uh, that, that's really cool. One that, you know, you had that the way it sounds like your parents one pushed you to do better all the time, but also the fact that they had that much of a focus on the educational part of it. You know, I think, you know, if you look at today's society, um, you don't see as much of that anymore. And really, I think that's the kind of thing that we need to have to keep people involved in it and keep going with it. I mean, that's really cool to hear that your parents did it that way. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, I mean, you can, I guess you, there have been a lot of people make it without it, but I was, I had a big advantage having, you know, that, I guess, all those opportunities early on right. uh, the teaching. And then once they saw that I had developed a strong interest in whatever it was, you know, they would provide whatever I needed to get better at those things. So, um, and, and we weren't rich by any means. Uh, Daddy worked hard and all that kind of stuff. So it wasn't, I had to be really interested in it and I had to put out the work and the effort and show that interest. And if I did, you know, um, they would support me with that stuff. And it, uh, it just progressed from 
I get, I get really and truly, I guess that turned into what I'm doing now. And you can connect the dots back some way to every bit of that. Sure. Um, the same way with some of the social media stuff, people, I've had people ask me, like, why do you, why do you acknowledge or say, speak to everybody that says something, it may be a happy birthday deal mm-hmm. and you'll get a pile of comments and stuff, or it may be a post and you'll get a pile of comments. Well, I was raised that if somebody takes the time out of their day to speak to me or say anything to me, then I better acknowledge them. And so even though I'm grown now and I don't have to, uh, I still do those things because of it, you know? So, and a lot of that just flows right over into, you know, when I'm doing stuff that nobody would ever see or know about, whether it's building calls or recording sounds, there's a certain level of expectations that I put on myself based on how I was raised. And even if they don't see it, I mean, there's, there's certain beliefs in the way that I live my life with my wife and my family and, and the way we conduct business and all that kind of stuff that relates back to, to not only my parents, but even, you know, my, my grandparents and stuff that are dead and gone, but I still don't want to be, I mean, the world's changing in a lot of ways and some big ways. And I don't let any of that stuff filter. I I wouldn't, I don't want to be an embarrassment to, uh, to them. Right. Just in case they're watching me from above, you know, they're all of that stuff plays a role in how I do everything that I do today from the hunting and the business side of it to how I conduct myself on, you know, social media or, or just, out in public in general that's really cool to hear that um were you an only child no i've got a sister oh, and okay. i'm i'm a couple years older than her so was there that same drive with her as there was with you in terms of your parents working yes that, you know outdoor stuff yeah but she's she was that's another thing that was and i'm i'm the same way so with me being a boy everything that's where some of the working out and some of that stuff comes from. I was raised from early on, you know, boys are big and strong and they protect the girls and the girls are feminine and sweet and nice and they cook and clean. And, you know, that stuff will ruffle feathers some nowadays, but I was raised to be a a big, strong man. And she was raised to be, you know, a a woman. And Mm -hmm. so they, they put the same amount of effort, in both places, but it was directed differently. So where I'm out there running a trap line, my sister is, has, you know, baby dolls and, you know, doll houses and very feminine type girly stuff. And I had, you know, boy stuff. So my sister doesn't really, she's, she's all for it and, and is big supporter of it. Just just like my mom, my mom doesn't, they fish a little bit, but they're not, they're not doing the hunting and all that kind of stuff. Now they're cooking the squirrels and the turkeys and the deer and all that kind of stuff. And are really good cooks. And that's kind of where the, the focus was for each of us equally equal treatment, both ways, just different focus because I was a boy, she was a girl. So there weren't any competitions between you and your sisters to who got the biggest buck. No, no, (laughs) no, I don't, I don't, 
I don't think Elena, my sister's name is Elena, and I don't think, I don't think she's ever killed a deer. Okay. I don't know that she's ever killed a, a squirrel or anything. She's done a little fishing here and there, but uh, she doesn't do much hunting at all, but is absolutely for it. You know, mm-hmm. she just, she just kind of takes the women didn't hunt back then, you know, too much. And uh, so uh, she never got into it. So going back to your trapping days, um, you guys were doing good in terms of like selling fur or would you say you guys got more money from dealing with the live animals? It depended on what it was. Uh, back to being this far and, you know, this deep in the South, we never have what you would call good fur. Right. But the fur market was good enough then that even Southern fur prices were worth getting out there trapping. And, you know, the coon prices and mink prices. And, I mean, you could even sell possum and, and skunk and, and they were worth skinning. Um, but probably by probably by the time I really didn't do much land trapping when I was a, a little kid, I got more into the fox and the coats and stuff as a teenager. And by that time, the fur prices had shifted to where it was worth more for me to catch the uh, catch the fox and the coats and sell them live than it was to skin them out. Uh, because I would get, I think at the time, uh, trying to remember, I think I got like $50 for a gray fox. 75 for a red and 100 100 to 150 for a live coat so at the time they were pretty good and that was just set prices as long as their feet were in good shape they didn't want them if they couldn't you know if they couldn't run but if they if they had good feet on them um they were worth more live and that was good money back then oh yeah yeah especially for you know a a teenager right i would get up and run that I would get up. I remember one morning in particular, I think I caught seven gray fox, which is what we had the most of. I rarely caught any reds, a few at the time, and there's even fewer now. But uh, I think I had seven gray fox on that little short line that I had behind the house. And uh, so that was that was pretty good, pretty good catch. Heck yeah. <laughs> Earlier than that, it was mostly daddy did a, my grandpa did a lot of water trapping. He was a big trapper. You know, mm-hmm. That's probably his favorite thing to do. He got into the trapping stuff and big into the water trapping. So it was mink and coon and otter and stuff like that um, more so. They didn't do a whole lot of beaver and muskrat or anything like that uh, with the cotton bears. But, you know, a lot of a lot of foot hold style trapping, blind sets for coon, mink and uh, otter, you know, stuff like that is what uh, – what we caught early on and then i progressed into the land trapping for the the bigger predators and that's what i really liked the best i i enjoyed the land trapping you know scent post dirt holes i really liked scent post type stuff and uh did a lot of that and i still i i don't do much trapping anymore but i've got a grandson now and he's a year and a half old i'm already teaching him to shoot a bow and uh, and he's only a year and a half old, but I'm trying to do him the same way that uh, that I was done. So he's he goes out in the woods and he's already learning, and I'm questioning him. You know, I'm pretty much following that same set of uh, set of guidelines that that was uh, that I grew up with. That's really and, cool. Uh, yeah, I, I want him to learn. 
I want him to learn woodsmanship skills without pulling out the map on his phone or not. And I'm not against using it. I use that stuff all the time. I'm all for technology and taking advantage of it. But I also want, you know, I meet so many people now and I hunt with so many people that don't know a lot of that, that stuff. And, and I'll, they don't know that I'm just being curious about what they know, but I may ask a question or in general conversation. And I realize that they don't know the trees and stuff that they're looking at. And they don't know, you know, if, if you couldn't pull your phone up, they'd be lost. They couldn't get back to the truck. Can't run a compass, you know, don't pay attention to their landmarks. And so there's some th certain things like that, that I feel like are lost today, especially with the kids coming up. They don't learn those type things. Great. And, uh, I want to teach him that stuff so that, uh, so that he can fall back on it if he needs to know it. Right. Because like anything, I mean, electronics can fail. I mean, you could be in the rain and have something get ruined. And if you don't have those basics behind it, yeah, you're struggling. So having that knowledge is, I mean, that's really important for anyone that wants to spend time in the outdoors. And not only that, but some of that stuff can apply to other situations. You know, you go on a trip, your car breaks down, you need to figure out how to get to some form of civilization. If you can't tell which direction to go and you know, what landmarks to look for, you might be SOL. <laughs> right. That's something that's odd about me. I'll get into these big cities, at which I hate going into into large areas. And, and what I call large, a lot of people would probably laugh at as far as cities go. But we get in there where there's a bunch of cars and buildings and stuff. My eyes don't operate the same as they do. I don't pick up on the landmarks and stuff. Um, I, I'll get lost in if I don't pay close attention, I'll get lost in, in a city yep. where in the woods, I can walk into the wood and everything looks the same to, to a lot of people. That's what happens to me when I get in town, everything looks the same because I, I don't have an interest in what I'm doing. And I'm bad about, you know, just driving, relying on a map or something like that. And then when I get ready to leave, I don't even know which way to turn <laughs> to start the trip. <laughs> Because I've relied on my phone or my mapping service, and a lot of I've caught myself trying to pay better attention to that stuff. Uh, the same way that I do when I'm in the woods, right. because even though I've got that phone and I use those mapping apps, which are great, they're more detailed. They'll, you know, I take advantage of them, mm -hmm. but I also still pay attention when I'm walking in and walking out, and if something happens, I can, I can get back to my truck one way or another right um going back to the trapping thing we were talking about you guys have cats down there yeah yeah we've got a we've got a, a fair amount of cats um, it, were you trapping them as well for the live thing no not at that time um uh, I, I never was really sitting and focusing on cats the area that i was trapping which was when I was doing most of my trip and I was trapping right there at mom and daddy's house where we grew up and we didn't have cats in that area uh, at the time. There are a few there now, uh, but I, I just, and I never branched out from trapping that area and getting into areas that had cats. Okay. So I never did. I never did focus on, on the cats. Okay. Uh, I think I had, uh, I had one accidental cat catch. Um, and the cat pulled out, uh, so I didn't get that cat. But uh, now, as far as I know, that was the only cat that I that I caught. Okay, I that's something that I may do when uh, and probably will do 
with my grandson because the, where I live now, I've actually got, uh, I know where some cats are all the time, mm-hmm. or at least where cat sign is. So I know the cats are there. So we'll probably, we'll probably catch some cats, uh, on his trap line. How old is he now? Year and a half old. Oh, so he, he's yeah. just getting started, but, but I, this, uh, he'll start trapping, you know, this, this coming fall winter, he'll, he'll have him a trap line. Nice. Probably won't be, be very long at first because <laughs> his attention span's so short, Right. but I want to introduce it to him. He spends a lot of time with me. So I want to, I want to get his mind on the right things early. Well, that's the nice thing about trapping. It, it, in some ways it's almost like run and gun hunting. I mean, because if you go to run your line, yeah, you have the road time in between or whatever, but once you get to your trap set, you know, you, check it out real quick. You check for sign. If you have a catch, you deal with a catch, check for sign. If just anything that you need to, and you go to the next one. So that shouldn't be too bad for a kid with a short attention span, really. Right. And I, I can, I don't know about how young I was, but I'm assuming probably in that toddler stage, just looking back at some of the old pictures, but I can remember, I couldn't wait. Waiting to run the trap line was as, was like waiting on Christmas for me. Um, And maybe I probably liked it better than Christmas. (laughs) And I know I do. I I know today that that's, that's what I like better is stuff related to the hunting stuff. That's, that's a, a, was a big deal. So I couldn't wait to go see the surprise of what that trap might hold and the anticipation of when you're walking up, you know, you got a trap just right there. And the anticipation of, do you have something or not? Right. And it was a constant high low on that trap line too, because you have the letdown of nothing being in the trap or the trap being thrown and, and you didn't catch. And then also when you get up there and you, you start closing in you see that the grounds all tore up and, you know, you may not even see the animal yet. So that, those were big, exciting oh, sure. uh, times for me was running that trap line. Yep. Um, so then how, what age would you say you started getting into calling? Uh, pretty early on. I I don't know. I know it was before I could drive. I'm going to say probably, probably in that 10, 11, 12 was my first exposure to actual calling my uncle, which is my mom's on my mom's side, her brother, uncle Bobby. He had got into some of the calling stuff. He trapped squirrel. He's big hunter, hunts everything. And uh, he had started doing a little calling. And he gave, he took me some, got me interested in it. And then he had a Johnny Stewart, some Johnny Stewart cassettes. And he made me a copy of a rabbit. So I had one, I had a Fisher Price tape set with all the little <laughs> read along books and read along tapes. Uh-huh. Well, one of them that I didn't really care for. Uh, one of the stories out of it. So it was probably younger than that uh, because I figured by the time I was 10 or 12, I was probably out growing that. But I had a little Fisher-Price tape player and read-along books and those tapes that went with it. Yeah. Well, I got one of the tapes that I didn't care for that much and recorded over it <laughs> with that rabbit, which was just trash audio. I mean, it was right. terrible. But I had a rabbit. And I don't even remember which one it was, but one of the Johnny Stewart rabbits had it on that Fisher Price tape and Fisher Price tape player with a speaker that full volume was mostly static and 
wasn't, I mean, wouldn't reach across the room, you know, volume wise. But I carried it out after I got that. I carried it out my very first time out. I went behind mom and daddy's house. It's one of the, I forget a lot of, a lot of the stuff in between then and now, but I hadn't forgot that one. I set that Fisher Price uh, tape player down, turned it on, and in just a second, a gray fox. We were blessed to have so many gray fox at the time because it it was good calling for and and a confidence builder for somebody like me that was just getting into the calling side of it at such a young age. And I either had a I think I had a twenty two magnum okay. that I had with me and called that gray fox up and killed him, and then kept that same Fisher Price and called up a couple red fox and killed them. And then I upgraded to a lime green jam box from a, <laughs> like people would carry on their shoulder yeah. and two speakers in it. Lime green dollar store, general dollar store, uh, jam box that I would put that red tape in. And so that was my, that was my first predator hunting or predator calling setup. And like I said earlier, my parents were always pretty good to, Anything that, that I really got into, they would support it. So here I am going out with this stuff that barely even gets you by, but I was going and they, they knew I was really into it, really liked it. So I don't I don't know if I got it for Christmas or birthday or if I just got it. Uh, they were good about getting me stuff whenever I needed it. But then I upgraded from that to a Johnny Stewart, with the and I still have all of this stuff. I never get rid of or sell anything, so I've still got this Johnny Stewart called. But I upgraded to I don't remember the model number on it, but it had the speaker with the rollout cord, like mm-hmm. fifty foot or hundred foot of cord. Got the Johnny Stewart tapes. Started hunting some with uh, my uncle and my dad, and then was killing, you know, a little bit of everything. Some fox, a cow here and there, a bobcat, but I was having pretty much no success myself calling in anything except fox the couple of coats that i did call in i didn't get them killed and uh so it was i kind of went through a a stage there of i got to where i wanted to call coats because i was killing a few and this is before i had figured out gray fox vocals so i'm running the rabbit nonstop. that's all i'm playing this one rabbit i had some johnny stewart tapes that had gray fox fights and gray fox pup but i didn't think they would call anything up you know i didn't i I thought they had to be a rabbit or a bird and all that kind of stuff so i wasn't having much success on coats and i had thinned the gray fox out there around the house so i went through a a street there where unless i went with my uncle or something like that wasn't calling much and i got big into turkey hunting and deer hunting and stuff like that and kind of set the calling to the side i would go a little bit but not much and then probably in my i would say my later teenage years i decided i wanted to learn how to kill coats and uh so my buddy dave stucks uh he at the time was still living we were still both living there around warren and so we got to going some, and I bought a Fox Pro FX3, mm-hmm. got it, and uh, or actually my parents bought it, got it loaded down, and uh, I so we started hunting some, and man, we were just slaughtering the gray fox. I mean, we were piling them up at that time, about any place you wanted to stop, and I figured out gray fox distress 
uh, once I got that call. I actually figured it out just before I got rid of or didn't get rid of it, but quit using that Johnny Stewart. I had that gray fox tape, and I we had called out a stand, uh, me and a, another buddy named Jonathan Beasley, we'd called out a stand with rabbit. Nothing had shown up, been there 15, 20 minutes. I swapped tapes and put in one of those gray fox sounds. That I don't think it played 10 seconds, and two gray fox come running over the call. Nice. And so that, I picked up on that. Got that FX3. Only sound I played was Gray Fox Fox. <laughs> we were just calling in, and, and then we were also calling in an occasional cat and coat. And eventually, I got I figured out that cats really like Gray Fox, and and coats did too. So started killing a little bit of that, and then got onto the hand call deal. And that's when I really started killing uh, coats. Um, I ran two or three different hand calls, several different hand calls. Tried a bunch of them. And we were hunting every morning and every afternoon, just about it, for sure every afternoon. But we were we were only hunting January, February at the time, and just started smashing the coats with hand calls. So up until that point, you guys hadn't been using any hand calls. Your uncle, or your dad hadn't been using any hand calls. No, all electronics. Okay, which was kind of reversed from the way a lot of people get started. Right. We were we were running the uh, the electronic stuff first. Okay, and. Along the way, I, I started getting on. I wanted to kill these coats and stuff. I started getting on Predator Masters forums and doing a lot of reading and seeing all the hand call stuff. And um, so I started buying hand calls and started killing coats with hand calls. And we're and Bobcats too. We started having a lot of success on everything. And I mean, we killed pretty much every time we went out, morning or afternoon. We would kill at least one, and sometimes as many as six or seven predators mixed bag stuff fox coats cats uh, on a pretty much a daily basis and because i i'm a i have an obsessive type personality where when i get an interest in something that i want to learn i'll just burn it up where i go day after day until i kind of get it figured it out figured out or at least satisfied with with all right i kind of know what's going on and then i can back off of it a little bit but so here's a technical question on you. How was that transition in terms of your setup going from using an electronic caller with a you know a cable to a speaker to a hand calling setup? Did that take you a little while to make that adjustment or not really here because of our terrain being so thick? So even with an e-call, a lot of times I didn't want to fool with rolling that Johnny Stewart out. So I would have it sitting, you know, just a few feet away. And I didn't want the same thing with the Fox Pro, that FX3. I would have it sitting there pretty close to us because I couldn't see, you know, a lot of times past, you know, outside shotgun range. Mm -hmm. So we were always, always had to call right there close to us anyway. So I didn't, I didn't have to make that transition from having the call out here where they're not looking at you to, having the focus on you. I mean, the focus was on us the whole time just because of how thick it was. Gotcha. But by the time, if if they ever got to where they could see us, they were in trouble because they're plenty close enough to kill. So and uh, In regards to that, um, were you still running that 22 mag or did you transition to a shotgun at that point? I had transitioned. I realized that the 22 mag after losing a few animals, I can remember a couple bobcats that I shot that jumped up in there and cut a flip and 
probably killed them, but didn't find them. Mm. And uh, some coyotes and stuff that I realized that if the shot angle and all that wasn't just right, uh, the 22 mag wasn't, wasn't a good option. It's great on those fox, but anything else, it wasn't enough gun. And so, and it's so thick, right. uh, I swapped. We had swapped to a shotgun, or I had swapped to a shotgun at that point, and Dave was shooting a 22-250, even though a lot of it was close-range stuff. And we were doing, at that time, I was learning, you were asking me about the transition. We did a lot of setups on old four-wheeler trails, power lines, right-of-way type stuff that ran through these thickets because we could see down them a pretty good ways. And so I would hold the shotgun, he'd hold the 22-250, and if they did come out, you know, too far, he would shoot them with it. Mm -hmm. But I quickly, coach taught me real quick in this thick stuff that I hunt, they don't like, if they, if coach live in really thick stuff where it's thick everywhere, they don't like to expose themselves in the open. And you can go other places where the coach are used to open ground. Right. And you don't have that much trouble calling them out. But I realized that, and some of it was because we would see the coach run across without stopping or we would hear them come by us. And so I realized that we were missing opportunities by setting in these roads or right-of-ways. And so I I did transition. That kind of was something that changed about our setup was where we quit setting in these roads and right-of-ways. We gave up visibility to set in the thickets. And a lot of times we put the wind and stuff like that in some kind of an open area or towards one of those roads or trails because I picked up on that the couch didn't like exposing themselves in the, you know, in the open. Right. And that that's worked well for my style of hunting as far as how I set up a lot of times. I like to put the wind, like say a field edge, a lot of people and me included earlier on, I would have sat looking at the field. But down here, once I figured out those couch didn't like to expose themselves, I would set inside the wood line but still be able to see the edge of the field i would give them you know whatever shotgun range was 40 50 60 yards inside the tree line with the wind blowing back towards the field set the call out the other side of me once i did start taking advantage of moving the e-calls kind of what i do today set the e-call you know on upwind of me even more and then if the cow comes directly to the call i've got him on that side and if what they typically do is they're going to try to run the field edge inside the tree line between the call and the field edge. And it works really good. We, we take advantage of knowing that those scouts don't want to expose themselves in the open. Mm -hmm. They also want the wind. So we give them that 40 or 50 yard strip between the position of the shotgun and probably another, you know, so they've got probably a hundred yards between the call and the field edge that they can come downwind to that call and any place they come in that 75 to 100 yard stretch between the call and the field edge, I can pop them with that shotgun. And uh, it's, a, it's a deadly setup when everything, you know, wind and everything will cooperate in relation to where the goats are. Nice. I like that. Yeah, you're giving them that corridor to come in to give them that comfort area, so to speak. Right. Um, what do you run for a shotgun right now? I run the same old 870, Remington 870, that uh, I traded. I got it back when I was a teenager. I traded some tires for it. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I traded. I was working at a tire shop at the time, and I traded a set of tires for 
that shotgun. And I've been shooting it ever since. It shoots really good. And uh, it is, there's no telling. I've shot it. People that have come hunting with me have shot it. There's no telling how many coyotes. I wish I'd kept up with it, but there's no telling how many animals, uh, turkeys, coyotes, and everything else that that gun has killed. I've wore the slide out. I call it a, the slide, but I've wore those out. This is, I'm on the fourth go around. Really? That's how many times <laughs> that gun's been pumped. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, but well, it's a it's a Remington eight seventy. It's got a six eighty Indian Creek choke in it. Okay, and I'm shooting uh, I'm shooting three inch Apex number twos or two before blends. They okay. do they pattern really well and uh, just they're devastating on coyotes. How cats. far out? How far out do you feel comfortable with that taking a shot? With that with that TSS stuff in the twos or the two befores, I won't hesitate at seventy yards. Really, um, we've got we've got. There's two on film. Daddy actually shot both of them. We have two on the YouTube channel that are, I can't remember the exact yardage. Both of them are over 80 yards. Mm -hmm. And the coyotes are running, they're leaving. Mm -hmm. And and it's still, I say, shoot them in the tail, knock your teeth out. <laughs> That's how devastating it. You know, with some of the lead stuff, those coyotes get away. It doesn't break them up enough. Yeah. You know, if the shot angle's not right. When I was shooting lead stuff, BBs, number four buck, I could get – I felt like my consistent range, consistent kill range was about 40 yards. And I know you can stretch it out a little bit farther than that if everything's just right. But if that coat comes in and turns to leave or there's brush or something, I, I wasn't very confident with. And I have a – I mean, I spend the time to get my patterns as good as you can get for whatever – you know, whether I'm shooting number four buck or BBs or whatever, I've got the patterns to reach out those distances. They just didn't have the penetration. That lid would flatten out, and a lot of those coyotes knock them down, spin around, jump up, and run off if you didn't put another shot or two in them. Mm -hmm. But with that TSS stuff, it was – and I was a skeptic of it until they they sent me some and said, hey, just try it. And I shot it, and I'm a believer in it. It will – if if the gun, I, the twos are rated for I think a hundred penetration wise, they're rated for one hundred and seven yards on a coyote sized animal. Wow. Now, of course, you'd have to have sights on your gun and all that kind of stuff to to try to even shoot something at one hundred and seven yards. Uh, and I I wouldn't even attempt that. But the penetration is there, so right. if you can get the mm -hmm. the pattern density at whatever range you feel comfortable that you can hold and get that pattern to him. Uh, it'll get him, and and he doesn't have to be standing in a particular position. He can have his tail to you, and you can still get him on the run trying to get out of there. So you, it's, it's good stuff. You've had that shotgun for a long time. I mean, you guys have used it a lot. That's one of the things I really remember about watching your guys' videos was the close-up shotgun-type action. So on your shotgun, do you still just use a bead sight, or have you put fiber optics on it or anything? I haven't. I've tried. I've, man, I just, I'm kind of one of those. I hate changing. Okay. Once I get used to something and I learn something, sure. uh, it's hard for me to change. I hate it when my shoes wear out and I have to get a new <laughs> pair of shoes or, and my wife will give me, you know, <laughs> crap about changing, you know, buying a new pair of shoes and the same thing with my clothes, my guns, my bows, you know, I, I'll, once I get used to something and I'm, I feel confident and efficient with it. 
it's it's hard for me to change and uh, I don't care to you know some people may laugh at some of the stuff they see me drag out of my truck sometimes to hunt with but I feel efficient with it because I've used it so much yep. and I'm very comfortable with it you know I I've shot that shotgun so much and I've shot some of my other uh, equipment so much some of the clothes that I wear you know it's just it's a I don't have to think about anything. Yeah. I don't have to think about it. It's just automatic. Uh, my response to to whatever animal's coming in, and I don't have to learn anything. So uh, <laughs> right. I, I like I like that side of it. But sometimes I will, you know, kind of like the apex stuff. I, I said I was a skeptic of it. I did not want to change because I thought I had a pretty good setup with my well, my number four buck and the BBs that I would shoot. But they were so much better that. I I couldn't not change. <laughs> right. and so sometimes I'm forced to change. <laughs> I'm sure. forced to change. So speaking of change, tell us about why you started and when you started MFK. MFK partly came about by accident. Um, I always wanted to work in, you know, something related to the outdoors. I was a taxidermist for several years. I wanted to film and hunt for a living. You know, that was kind of a childhood dream. And uh, but I didn't I didn't have any connection to anybody that was in it. I didn't have the money to buy space on a TV show or anything like that. But I did some sort and still do some sort of hunting. And if I wasn't hunting, occasionally fishing pretty much every day of my life. That's that's what I do. And I've always lived, you know, to where it's right out my back door. And so as I got older and got to where I could travel and hunt and, you know, drive myself and all that, I got big into the turkey hunting stuff. Uh, I was after them hard and I would buy these turkey calls and I was same thing with the calling stuff. I'm real competitive with myself on anything. So I, I get these turkey calls. I'm trying to teach myself how to run them. My uncles and people that would get around me, they'd make fun of me, you know, is that a duck call and all that kind of <laughs> stuff. So that just drove me even more. Uh, my mom picked me up. A, it was a Dury Sounds of Spring VHS tape, and that's kind of how I taught myself to, to call turkeys. And this will all tie into MFK. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just the, the long version of, of how it got going. But I got that Sounds of Spring, started learning the turkey call, and – started by and that's another thing it was odd i taught myself with a diaphragm first i didn't a lot of people start with friction first and progress to a diaphragm well, i started with a diaphragm first and really never got into the friction call i can run them and and have some but i just never used them because i learned the diaphragm first but i started learning all these different you know turkey vocals and for the most part when i would buy a new call i could as I got better with the vocals, I realized, well, this call yelps really good and I can purr better on this one and this one cuts. But I was trying to find a call that I could do that everything on. And I, so I started, that's when I kind of got into the call building stuff. I would buy store-bought turkey calls, every brand you can think of. And I started clipping the reeds and see, I would just see what it did to the call. And before long, I, I had a couple of different calls that were store-bought calls that I would buy and I would clip the reeds on it to get it. To, and then I could do 
pretty much it was it would suit my the way I ran a call and I could cut and cackle and purr and yelp and do everything on that one call. From there, I said, well, if I'm doing this, I've, I'm interested in building calls. So I started building turkey calls just for myself, hunting me and Dave or at this same time that I'm fooling with the turkey call stuff. That, that's when Dave and I were hunting coats and fox every day and with the hand calls. And when I progressed to the hand calls, we were killing so much stuff with that FX3 using fox vocals. Dave didn't want to switch. But I wanted to learn the the howling and stuff on the hand call. So we switched and we start killing with that stuff. And along this same process, I'm doing all this turkey call stuff with the diaphragms. Well, I thought to myself, if if I can make all these different turkey vocals and calls, then maybe I can build some calls that sound like rabbits and fawns and coats and all this kind of stuff. So I start building because I looked out there and I, there really wasn't anything marketed much. There were a few diaphragms on the market that were labeled as predator stuff, but I'd buy them and I didn't feel like they were, I felt like they were an elk call or a turkey call or something. Because I'd look at the cuts and I said, well, it's just turkey call that, you know, they've put predator on the label. And I, I didn't find anything that I really liked. So I started building diaphragms and started trying to do all different kinds from coons to gray fox to rabbits, birds, and of course, all the coat vocals on diaphragms. I'm still on that Predator Master Forum at the time. I get these calls to where they're sounding pretty good. I tell Dave, I'm like, we're not using the hand calls anymore. We're using diaphragms. And uh, he's like, man, this is working. Why you want to swap? We're killing. We swap to the diaphragms and we start killing even more. And I figured out howling, uh, I was reading stuff and didn't know about the howling deal. It just so happened it was the right time of year. I think it was in August. I was with my buddy, Jonathan Beasley. I pulled up on the gravel road in the middle of the day, got out of the truck and howled, and a group of coyotes answered us not 200 yards off the road. We slipped out there and killed three of them. And that's what got the howling stuff really going. Still on Predator Masters. I start posting videos. We start carrying a camera with us. And... Dave is trying to get me and, and Kerry Wayne. Kerry, I started hunting with Kerry Wayne, who a lot of people know from running a lot of the, he's filmed a pile of the hunts and been in front of the camera a lot too. Well, they were all telling me, you know, hey, you need to sell these calls. You need to sell these calls. I'm like, man, I don't want nobody to know about these calls or how. Because <laughs> right. uh, I was a low-key guy. I didn't do the social media stuff or like on Predator Masters, I would read, but I didn't do, I was on there for a long time, as I guess they would call it a maybe a, a, a reaper or yeah. whatever. Yeah, <laughs> I'll just reading everybody else's stuff but not contributing. And uh, so they finally, I said, well, if I don't sell them in Arkansas, it won't hurt me. And maybe this will pay for a little gas. So I start selling a few on. I start posting that stuff on Predator Masters. I become active on there. We start putting up pictures and stuff. And then I put up. Uh, the two reed pup howler i put some of those up for sale and this guy named jason Grossclose out of virginia calls me up and buys one takes it and wins the first world championship with it uh, i think that was in 2000 i started building the calls in 2009 selling them in 2009 and i think he won our first world championship howling championship i believe it was 2010 uh, yeah, I know it was. So 2010, he wins the first World Howling Championship. 
we've never seen each other because of my raspy voice. I talked to him on the phone, asked him if he wants to, you know, do something with these calls. And he doesn't tell me, but he's thinking I'm a 70 year old smoker. So he's not interested <laughs> in working with an old man that may drop dead any minute. He kind of hooks up with another company that doesn't work out. We end up getting back in touch and we decide to do, we still have never been around each other, but they've got the next competition coming up in uh, Georgia. Uh, the That's was the, the Scurry brothers were putting this world predator and hog uh, expo on and had to call him world coat calling competition, stage calling competition. So we go out there, have a booth, meet with Jason. That's kind of where, and at the time it was TC custom calls. The slogan was made for killing. That takes place. Jason wins again. So that starts getting some attention to the calls. And we're demonstrating these calls. Everybody else is using hand calls. And we're just, we're, we're winning with these, with the diaphragms, especially in the howling stuff. So fast forward to the next World Predator competition the following year. We go out there, and at this point now, I'm also competing. And Jason wins uh, the Howling Division. I win the uh, the Prey Division. Kerry Wayne and Sterling both win. I think there were I think there were twelve or thirteen trophies up for grab, and we took all of them but one or two. Nice. And uh, and then progressed from there, and uh, I won the all round because I was I was was teaching myself to do every kind of animal that was related to predator hunting, gray fox, coons, all of that. So when the all around during that, after all that happens, I got a call from a company that wanted to buy me out and wanted the recipe for all the diaphragms. And at the time I was living in a double wide trailer with holes uh, trying to go through the floor. I needed the money, you know, and I almost sold, uh, but I'd put, I was so passionate about it and so involved. I talked to my parents about it. Of course, I'm grown at this point, and I decided not to do it, and, and I'm glad I didn't. But during the course of that conversation where I was negotiating with, with him, they wanted to cut. The only reason I didn't do it is because they wanted to drop my name, and they just cut me out of it all the way around. They were going to change the name to their brand and just run with it, and it would – would have been no more of what turned into MFK. But something that the guy said to me on the phone was that, you know, they really weren't interested in my name because it was TC Custom Calls. Mm -hmm. TC, of course, standing for Tory Cook, and the slogan was made for killing. And after I got off the phone with him, I realized, all right, so my initials and stuff doesn't have as much value. And I, I – I agreed with it. You know, there's, I don't necessarily want to wear some other guy's name on my shirt or something like that. And people on Predator Masters were already, and Dave, Dave is the one that got the MFK stuff really going. Of course, he was referring to MFK as another meaning uh, at the time. Uh, so MFK kind of had that double meaning early on. And people on Predator Masters were starting to shorten it up. And instead of calling it TC, they were called referring to them as MFK. And so I changed the colors, changed the name. It became MFK. Started after winning all the, the contests, we got hooked up 
even more with Jason and he started doing, you know, all of our video editing. We were videoing and I'm sending the videos to him. He's videoing and we start that's when we really started putting out a lot of content, showing the calls in action, calling up animals and they caught on. People started buying them and I'm selling, I'm hand making them on the kitchen table in that trailer and I can't keep up. I'm sticking a business card in there. And so it just started progressing from there and uh, to the, to where it is today. And, and at this point, my wife, Tori Lynn, have the same, a lot of people, you know, both of us named Tori, but she has taken it next level. I mean, the company continues to do what it does uh, because of her and she likes to hunt and do all that stuff. So a lot of times she's behind the scenes doing a lot of stuff that I get the credit for. Uh, Cause I'm, I'm in front of the camera and she's content to a lot of times do the bulk of the work uh, in the background. And, you know, now we've been able to hire some family members, hired my sister-in-law and daughter-in-law. My dad works for me some. Um, and uh, it's, it's really progressed, but building those turkey calls and clipping the reeds is what got the, the diaphragm side of it going. And of course, now we're doing the sound recordings and partnered with Fox Pro. Uh, so it's been a, it's been a fast growth and, uh, uh, and a, really and truly a lot of it is because of the people that were willing to try it. You know, I, I did not have the money or, and the backing to market it and promote it. So a lot of it was word of mouth, people trying them and then saying, Hey, this stuff worked pretty good. Uh, y'all should try it. And so I've always been very grateful for all the people that have bought the stuff. Like you said, before we went live, you said you tried some of the Turkey calls, you know, that, that hit me instantly. And it always does. That never gets old. It's always a big deal to me. Uh, the people trying our stuff and, and because it changed my life. I mean, the people that use our stuff changed my, my life in a big way. So uh, very grateful for everybody that, that used it then and that continues to use our stuff today. That's cool. You know, no, another American success story, really, when you think about it. I mean, oh, yeah. built from the ground up. That's, that's a lot to be, you know, proud of. That's a big accomplishment. And yeah, I mean, I still have those first turkey diaphragms that I got from you guys. I still have them. Our turkey season starts this Saturday and I'll probably have those out with me because kind of like what you were saying, uh, I can use a friction calls, but I feel most confident using a diaphragm for turkeys. Right. I don't have that confidence when it comes to using them for predators, but I do for turkeys for sure. Yeah. Um, when you first started selling the diaphragms, did you sell turkey first or predator first? I actually sold tur uh, predator first because okay. the turkey market was so flooded. I, I just never focused on, we sell a lot of turkey calls now, but it's because of the success of the predator calls. And the predator stuff is still our main, our main line. I don't really push the turkey calls. Uh, we've got them and, and they're, they're great. They sound great. I put just as much time and effort into them, but there's a billion turkey manufacturers and there's that many videos. And I mean, every time you get on any form of social media, there's somebody chirping on 
a turkey call and it's they're saying you know that this one is the best one and then you scroll down and it's another guy and they all sound great i mean the turkey market has progressed to the point to where you know there's a lot of great turkey callers and and the predator side stuff too when we first come on the scene you know there was nobody really doing much with with predator diaphragms Mm. the howling and especially some of the prey stuff now there are some guys that are really really good uh, on the diaphragm stuff the last handful of competitions that uh, stage calling competitions that they've had we don't even compete in them anymore is be like jamie terry i mean there are people associated with me buddies but they've gotten so good on them i'll just build calls for them and They'll get up there and, and do it. And there's a lot of guys that just use, you know, just use the calls that sound amazing on them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm proud of that too. You know, I, I like mm-hmm. hearing people get them and, and get good with them and uh, especially uh, kill stuff with them. Yeah. Now you, you were talking a bit before about doing the calling competitions. Did you ever do a Turkey calling competition with your diaphragms? I never did. No, I never no. did it. No, and uh, I, I can run a turkey call pretty good. Um, I can do about, I've just recently taught myself to gobble on them pretty good. But there's so many. I, I had considered getting into some of that. And the reason I didn't is because I went and listened with a completely open mind, unbiased. And there were. I don't know how they picked a winner on, on a lot of them. I mean, your top guys with the Turkey stuff, it's, it would be, it'd be tough. It would be tough to pick a winner. And if you can even get on stage with some of those people, uh, your top level on the Turkey stuff, just because it has Turkey is it's huge. The Turkey stuff is just so huge now, yeah. nowadays it's, uh, it's massive. So, I never did it, and I did a lot of – I told you early on how competitive I am with stuff. Mm-hmm. I learned – during my teenage years, I, I did a lot of competitive stuff. I was big into bow fishing, traveled all over. And I'm I'm not a guy that can participate and have fun. I, I never – I've never been in sports, basketball, football, competition, calling. That's why I don't do contests and – I learned this stuff from all the competitive stuff I did at a, at an earlier age. I'm competitive enough. I'm most competitive with myself and critiquing what I'm, what I'm doing. But if I sign up for something, it's impossible for me to do it. It, It's not fun to me when I sign up for some type of competition. The only way that I have uh, satisfaction and, and am not disappointed is if I win. So you know, any, anything less than that. And I put so much, I guess, pressure and, and, and a lot of this comes from my mom, you know, like I told you, I can hit nine free throws out of 10 or I can hit 19 out of 20. Why did I miss the one? (laughs) You know, that, that type, that's kind of what was, and don't get me wrong. I got a lot of praise and a lot of confidence, uh, you know, felt like I was good at what I was doing there's always that you can be a little better and I, I like that from the it's good and bad because it puts a lot of stress on when I'm recording sounds I've probably thrown away a lot of sounds that were good enough to kill a lot of coats but 
they didn't meet my expectations and you know just on the competitive side of things I loved to bow fish for a period of time and then I got into competitive bow fishing I was shooting these tournaments not I was shooting them locally and then on a state level and then even going to all the world and national competitions and uh, I wanted to win the worlds and so I took something that I really enjoyed doing you know when the fish were spawning and it was good and you could go out there and kill a bunch of them I turned that into work to where I was going you know we'd have a, a tournament on Saturdays and I was in two clubs local clubs and so I'm scouting for both of those clubs and I would fish about six nights a week out of a seven seven day week I would fish six nights a week and most of it was just scouting water and trying to cover everything and count the fish and know which holes they were in and which ones they weren't and learning water levels and it it was I turned something that I enjoyed into something that was all about trying to win that tournament if i didn't win i was disappointed and it, it made i don't bow fish at night at all now i don't care anything about it because i completely burnt myself out on it doing it so much uh during that time frame but i, I did i did won multiple state titles and then won that worlds and as soon as i won that worlds it was like sticking a pin in a balloon letting air out of it i mean my mm -hmm. interest level you know, my drive for it really fell off after that. And I didn't fish very – I fished very few tournaments, a few more local tournaments. I went to one more world that I was talked into by some buddies, and we finished runner-up in it, and uh, that, that wound me up. And then from there, I got into the competitive calling stuff with the Predator deal. And it about wore me out on, I put so much pressure and, and effort just, I mean, it was a daily deal where my life was focused around building calls and then practicing with calls and building calls. And my my whole year was, a lot of it was focused on this one day that lasts a few minutes. And then after all it was over with, and, and today is stuff that I'm proud of, and I've got a room up here that's got all these plaques and trophies, but that stuff is, I mean, now that I look back on it, nobody cared about that really other than, you know, I'm sure maybe close family and stuff like that. They was proud of me for that 10 minutes. And, you know, but I realize that stuff like that is not, it's not that important because most people, most people don't care. They don't care what, what you want or what you did or there's a bigger picture, you know, and so now I put that that effort and that focus into trying to put out good sounds and good products and, and help other people uh, with the videos and doing these podcasts and stuff like that. I like, I get a lot of enjoyment uh, seeing other people do good. And where I felt so much pressure to perform in those competitive type stuff, now that not as bad uh, because it's it's for a different reason but i feel obligated to if i'm going to sell somebody sounds or you know a, a fox pro call or mfk product or any of that stuff anything that that i'm pushing or back and i feel like i need to also make that same effort so that whoever's buying the stuff is able to you know 
have good results. And so that's where I put my effort now instead of doing, you know, if I signed up for, for cow competitions or anything like that, that would take away from what I do with, uh, you know, focusing on the customers and products because I'm, I know how I operate and I know where my focus would be. And that would take away from, you know, the, the bigger picture what's more important and what people will really care about in the end. Um, you know, that's, that's a, will be a bigger deal. They don't care how, how many times I blew a diaphragm on some stage somewhere. And so that <laughs> stuff's not near as important to me uh, anymore. I got a technical question for you. And it's one that's, it's kind of been on my mind for a long time, but especially talking to you, I feel you're a good person to answer this question. When should you be using an amp horn with a diaphragm? Is it strictly for distance and volume? It, it has multiple uses. I tend to like to use them all the time because they have multiple uses. So volume is one of the, you know, one of the things that it gives you uh, right off the bat, but it also gives you different tones and pitches. And once you learn to use one with the back pressure and how fast or slow you run the air through that horn. For example, if you run less tongue pressure and run that air through that horn a little slower, you'll get a deeper pitched howl, a lot deeper pitched. And that's the main reason uh, when people call me and ask me about amp horns, the main reason to use them is because it gives you an easy way to change the pitch and tone of your call without having to learn a different way to blow it. Okay. So, People will get diaphragms, and a lot of times they want a deeper howl. And everybody's mouth's made a little bit different. Some people are just this, they're the sound chamber that their mouth makes, especially if they're new at it and they don't know how to change or form their mouth a different way and run different uh, air pressures and tongue pressures. But they can, they can howl decent, and they can bark, and they can do things plenty good enough to – kill cows, but they want that deeper pitch and they're not good with changing their mouth formations, then the easiest and the, and what an amp horn is most helpful with is changing those tones and pitches because you can get multiple sound changes and added volume without changing the way that you're running the call. So it really helps with that. So I, I would say a good time to use it is just right off the bat. And, and does that apply to using it for both distress and vocals? Now with the distress, the way that you're, you can, you can use an amp horn with a distress. I mean, uh, yeah, with using distress sounds, but I never found it very useful because when you're doing most of the distress sounds, the way that you move your, your mouth when you're doing rabbit vocals or pretty much any type distress the air escapes from it's hard to form your lips and push the air through the amp horn. So you're basically just holding the amp horn around, you know, up to your face, but a lot of the, the air is escaping because of the way you have to move your mouth to do the prey sounds. So it's just better to do it without it. And you tend to get higher pitches with the, without the horn. And you typically were looking for higher pitch sounds with most prey related stuff. So you could use it with a fond distress or something like that, but I don't, I always use it just mainly with the coyote vocals, howls and barks in particular, the, 
you know, kayaks, pup distress stuff, any of the high pitch stuff, no amp horn. So barking and howling, amp horn, everything else, just without. And now in terms of an amp horn, do you have a preference of using a natural material for the horn or a synthetic or is it just they're just different or do you have a preference it's just different i like the sound of of cow horn amps uh they just have a, a really good tone to them but when we were doing the competition calling and stuff like that i've i've seen jason use aluminum like um really beer bottles or not bottles but aluminum beer cans but they're shaped like a bottle where okay. they have that because it gave a different pitch. It was a little bit different than everybody else. And uh, so anything cone-shaped, some of the plastic, they all work plenty good, like those plastic cheer cones, cups, uh, anything that has a cone shape to it that would work to amplify, um, you can try hmm. and just see what link, different lengths, different thicknesses of an amp horn will give you different back pressure. So... You know, sometimes people want to howl through a big, long cow horn. They think that that big, long cow horn's going, and it will, to a certain degree, give you some more volume, maybe, but it also creates back pressure, and a lot of times it will cause pitch breaks at unwanted places. And so most of the time, what I what I typically prefer is a cow horn amp that's just a little bit wider than the width of my hand. So it's sticking out. You know, if I'm holding it in the palm of my hand, it'll be – you know, sticking out maybe an inch or so on each side of my hand. And that's a good, pretty good length for just that. That fits most, you know, most people okay. uh, amp horning about that length. And I like the cow horn just because of the tone it gives. It has a a natural sound to it uh, where some of the plastic and stuff almost, if almost you compare like them tinny. side by side, it has that, just that little bit of, yeah, that teeny tingy pingy type sound uh to it okay. but uh it all works for calling coyotes i don't think they pick up on it that much <laughs> gotcha speaking of coyotes that's one of the things that you've been doing a lot now is you have i don't know if you want to call them pets but you have coyotes that you live with is that a way to describe it yeah pretty much we have uh We've got a good bit of family ground right here, what we own and then what family owns around us. And then uh, I also lease, I'm in two leases that, so there's 20,000 acres, there's roughly 20,000 acres that surround my house. And we live, like I said, 17 miles from the nearest town, just, you know, pretty much anybody that lives in this area, most of them, a lot of them were kin to, and there's no houses on top of houses. So it's, you can leave my house and head south or north and never just stay in woods the whole time or thicket. And so when I got the first litter of coats, my wife and I, we started raising them as close as we could to uh, just like they would be raised by the adults. So we were, I, I made them a den right here behind our house and raised them in that den. We, tried to mimic the regurgitated food and we made them come up to us or I say made them we went we didn't just go out there and feed them and the way we mimicked that was with you know canned dog food milk and all mashed up into okay. what would be about the consistency of the parents coming back up there and and 
vomiting and the pups eating it. Sure. So, but the way the pups will come out of that hole, calling them out of the hole and them rubbing and nudging, that's what will trigger those adults to do that. So I tried to mimic, I tried to learn as much as I could about coyote behavior prior to having coyotes and applying that. And then as I raised, or as we, my wife's probably spent, she always took on the early, early beauty stuff. And then as they got older, you know, I was doing the sound uh, related stuff with them, but we both spent a ton of time with them and especially on that very first litter. And there, there's certain things just because of competition stuff that I don't, that I don't want to tell about sure. my exact setup, but I, I'll give out most of it. So we spent, because it's typically if you, if you were to try to raise goats and turn them loose, especially in numbers, they wouldn't stay around. They'd run off. I know of several people that have raised some and they get up a certain age and they turn them loose and <laughs> never see them again. <laughs> so there were certain, we spent, we spent more time with those goats through that first year than we did in our house. So, you know, we're basically living with them in that environment. And of course, food was a big part of that, but, Animals have that wild instinct about them that no matter how much you fool with them, they still have that in them. So it takes a, it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort and uh, just uh, pretty much devoting your, your life and your time to them to get them to do what, what I did with that first litter. And since then, I haven't spent as much time. I, I've raised, I think, I think I've raised 18 different ones and the less time I spend with them, I can see that, you know, as they age, they will uh, kind of revert back to some of those wild instincts. But yeah, it's been a, it's been an amazing, amazing deal. And after raising them and I've had them every kind of way I've, I've had coats back when I was trapping and stuff like that. And, and even today, I've got like right here. I'm sitting in this in this sound room. I've recorded them in sound rooms. I've recorded them in pens. I've recorded them all different kinds of ways. And I wanted to do something that was a little different than than most libraries had. And I wanted to see if I could record these coats, keep them around, raise them up, and just let them do their thing. You know, just act naturally in in a wild type environment mm -hmm. and that's what i was able to do and have have continued to record the bulk of my sounds uh that way and it's uh the main thing that i got from it is when i had codes and a pen or, or anything like that there's since they can't get away from each other it kind of changes their behavior it'd be like if you were going to study humans and you wouldn't go to the prison unless you wanted to study human behavior in prison. Right. So, you know, or the same thing as studying lines. You you go to the zoo, you're going to get, that's a different behavior at the zoo than it is free range. So I wanted to get free range sounds, but in the process, I was able to learn so much about cow behavior that I've been able to share with a lot of other people. And it, I mean, it just completely changed the way that I call, the way that I set up my my thought process about a lot of sounds, changed a lot of, of beliefs that I had 
from what I had read in magazines and Predator Masters and, and what a lot of a lot of the stuff that you see put out in books and and even a lot of things that have been put out by some well-known guys. I have a, a that that I believed at one point in time and kind of went with that with my calling uh, strategies that I have completely changed and no longer believe because I get to see scouts interact and I'm watching them at, you know, two or three feet away, recording them and watching them and seeing that pecking order structure and how they react to, you know, okay, what, what happens when uh, a big male coyote howls? How do these other younger coyotes and females and subordinate coyotes and how do they react to that? Do they run or do they come to it or what? So I've got to learn a lot of, of behavioral stuff as well as record all kinds of sounds uh, off of pretty much anything they do. I'm, I'm able to capture it. And it's, is there any one thing that really stands out to you that you, that surprised you that you learned about them since you've had them? How quick they educate is one. I didn't really buy into the educating deal with cows. Cows learn very fast. Um, but as far as the calling related stuff, Couch recognize each other's voice. Absolutely 100%. They recognize other family members when they howl. They know what coat that is howling. So basically, for, from a calling standpoint, they know if it's a resident known coat or they know if it's a strange coat. In our case, when we're calling, we're a strange coat to them. And that, that factors in big time to the way that I call nowadays and my choices of howls. And then also and this is something that ties in with that, I learned that howling, I don't care what howl you use, what age class it is, what gender it is, howling does not scare the other cows. Now, they're not always, I'm not saying that they're always going to show a positive response to howling, but a lot of times if you read about, people say, well, don't use male howls, and don't use old male howls or dominant howls because, you're going to scare subordinate young coyotes and stuff like that. And that's not the case at all because, and I think this is where it comes from. Some of those studies that have been done in places like Yellowstone and, and certain places, when they're doing those studies, they're studying coyotes that know each other. So they're, they're studying a group of coyotes that has known family members. And then there's, they're seeing the reaction of an established pecking order. So that family group of coyotes has an established pecking order. So yes, those subordinate coyotes are going to show, they're going to submit and show, you know, that type response to those coyotes that rank higher than them in that family structure. But if you introduce a strange coyote, how to, or a strange coyote, I don't care what his status is, wherever he came from, those cows don't know that. They don't know that he's the big dominant male, the alpha male from, you know, across the tracks. Mm -hmm. He's just another cow to them. And so every cow in that pecking, none of those cows have been whooped by this strange cow. So even your your lower ranking cows in the pecking order, which relates to us calling, they're not scared of that howl that we're using. It doesn't always mean that they're going to come to it, but you don't have to you don't have to look at your remote and scroll through there and say, well, this is a male howler and this is a, 
a female howl. Well, I better use this female howl because that male howl is going to scare everything that, you know, that I'm calling to. And some of my best howls, my most productive howls, like some of the Boone howls, uh, he was, he was, and he's not anymore, but at the time those howls were, were recorded, he was the dominant male coyote in my group of coyotes. And I've killed and called in and, and piles of other people have called in all age classes, everything from little bitty pups to coyotes with their teeth wore out, come into those dominant, what would have been dominant male howls, you know, in his family pecking order. Mm-hmm. So uh, I figured out that the howling deal is, and it's good from, from a calling standpoint because it opens our library up of sounds so that we can use you know, all those different type howls, male, female howls, and and figure out which howls on our remote uh, produce well. Because for whatever reason, there are certain howls that they seem to howl back to better, that may call a little better uh, than others. I don't know what the reason is behind it. It's just something about the tone or the pitch or whatever uh, that those, those cows do. And I also learned... This also relates to howling. I also learned that some of the definitions that are applied to howls are really not that they're not, they don't apply like people would think that they would. So if you get, after raising so many coats and hearing so many different coats howl, they all have a distinct howl pattern and voice, just like, just like humans or just like yard dogs do. So You'll, you have all these different labels with lone howls and interrogation howls and invitation howls and muster howls and, and greeting howls. And I mean, different people have put different stuff. People have wrote books about, you know, how many different vocalizations Coyote makes and what each one of these mean. And it's, that is, that's making it more complicated than it needs to be because you can take, a group of coyotes, all the ones that I've raised, when they when Boone does a version of his lone howl, it's gonna have it's gonna sound he he'll be howling for, you know, the same reason that the other ones howl, and he will have a uh, specific tone and pattern to that lone howl, and it's something that's pretty you know it's pretty repetition when he does it on another day, it's gonna sound about the same. When you jump to a different coat, his howl may be a lot shorter and it may have a different sound and little barks and stuff, but he's howling for the same. It's his version of a lone howl. It just may not be as long and it may not sound the exact same with little barks and breaks and stuff. But if you had somebody listen to those howls, somebody might would say, well, this one is a uh, invitation howl and this one is an interrogation howl. And this one's a little more, and I apply some of that to some of my sound titles because people relate to it, mm-hmm. but it's not that critical when you're picking out howls. You, I think you have a couple different types of howls. I think you have you basically your basic lone howls, and then you have your more aggressive challenge type howls, which are for a different reason and they're recognizable, but different coyotes will, will have a different type challenge howl. They don't all ho- follow that, 
you know, if you go back to the hand calls and stuff like that, and people giving definitions and and demonstrations of what a challenge house sounds like and what a loan house sounds like and what an interrogation house sounds like, that's it's not that that detailed and not near that complicated. So that challenge how pattern that you'll see people do with a with a hand call, I've got I've got to watch these coyotes do challenge howls and some of them will do way more barking than other ones do and, and other ones will do screaming type howls with very little barking and they are they're all none of them are warning barks and howls and stuff like that on these coats that I'm talking about. They're all just agitated because you know, some some other coyotes got close by and howled, and so they're doing different versions of a of a challenge howl. Now, warning barks and booger barking and all that stuff is a real thing; it exists. But you know, I when you know why the coyote is making the noise he's making, and you compare multiple coyotes howling for that reason, you'll get to see that they have very there are big differences in one coyote to the next and and his version or her version of a lone howl and his or her version of a challenge howl and so it it simplifies a lot of that stuff for you know for us calling yeah. so i don't pay that much attention to you know if i put interrogation howl basically the interrogation howls they sound a little more by definition they typically sound a little more uh, aggressive i guess you could say but a lot of times they're they're not really more aggressive when you watch the coyotes that are doing it. That's just their version of a of a lone howl. Three. So if I if I'm wanting to do a lone howl, I don't hesitate to pick one that says interrogation or one that says lone howl. Those the the effects that they have on calling coyotes is pretty much the same. So it really breaks down to each one has their own voice and the way they talk. I mean. Just like people, yeah, absolutely. It's just, it's exactly like that. And when you when you're howling, whether you pick a male or a female howl or an older coat or a younger coat, actually the older vocals, those older, longer, drawn out, a lot of times deeper howls, um, but mainly just the the longer, more drawn out howls from older, you know, adult coyotes mm -hmm. tend to get a better vocal response. I call a lot of coyotes with pup howls and younger coyote howls, but a lot of times they don't howl back. They don't vocally respond to those howls. They'll come into them. Mm -hmm. And on the adult howls, they will vocally respond and come in to them. So um, a lot of people that are looking for a vocal response, they'll, they will be under the impression that they need to use a young female howl. And so they'll, they'll pick a female pup howl of some type, throw it out there. And, you know, that's, that's not a good choice for a locator type howl. You know, I never use the pup howls. If I'm going around locating at night, I'm not going to pick and choose pup howls for locator howls. I'm going to pick those, those longer, more drawn out adult howls. And a lot of times it's going to be a male. You know, just because sometimes they'll have a, a deeper, not always, that's another misconception. A lot of times they are deeper, but 
anybody that's ever had hounds or just dogs in general, can you can you age and sex the dog based off the bark and the the no? And the coyotes are the same way. I mean, I've got a couple of females, and I've done this with with several people that have come over visiting. We'll get on the subject, and they'll they'll be telling me about well, you know, we heard such and such, and I'm sure it was the old male. Well, it might have been, and the odds favor if it was a deeper pitched owl, it favors it potentially being a male. But I'll let let them listen to a couple of these females that I've recorded that are a year old and they're howling, and you let them listen to them. They say, "Oh, that's an old male." <laughs> no, it's actually a year old female. They just got a real coarse, rough, mean sounding howl, and so. It simplifies all of this stuff. Simplifies, you know, picking and choosing howls when we're when we're calling. You just remember, you're a strange coat, and pick whatever howl you want to use. Now, I do separate the challenge howls from the you know from the lone howls and mm-hmm. the group howls and stuff like that, but uh, pair howls. But for the most part, you're a strange coat. They don't care how old you are, how mean you are when you when you throw that howl out there. So it opens, opens it up to where we can use whatever we want to. And uh, without fear of scaring coyotes. And I think that's what a lot of new callers and even a lot of older callers run into. Cause I read it daily. Mm-hmm. People that have called for a long time have not figured out that they don't have to use a, um, a female howl to call coyotes. You guys put out a, program and i think it was on dvd for a while but i know i have it on my computer called conquer the call right that was quite a few years ago i think it was quite a few years ago i know it was a few years ago but anyway knowing what you know now would you change any of the instructional stuff on that conquer the call oh it has been so long since I've looked at the information <laughs> on Conquer the Calls, but I would, pro- I would, that predates me having the coyotes and race. So I would probably say that uh, I don't know if I would change any of the instructions as far as learning to blow the calls and right. some of that, but some of the, the setup stuff and some of the information about coyotes. Yes, I would probably, without looking at it, knowing that it predates, then I, yes, I would probably. I don't know so much. There might be some stuff that I would change, but there's definitely stuff that I would add, like what we were just talking about. There were there are things that I would add um, that people need to know, and and it would help them. Female invitation is another one. I've said this on some other podcasts. I didn't pick up on it until I started recording coats and heat, mm-hmm. uh, and realized what a real female invitation howl is. So when I've recorded these females in heat howling, their howls from doing a, just a standard lone howl versus doing a female invitation howl are not that different. They, they sound basically the same. The difference is, is when they're in heat and they don't have another, cause they're alone. There's not another cow with them. They're not paired up. They will howl over and over again. So they'll, they may howl all night long with little gaps and breaks in between. So it's just repetitive, pretty much repetitive howling. And once I started picking up on that, I realized that if you, you know, if somebody's wanting to do a female invitation howl, and this is something else that you read a lot about, especially during breeding season, you'll see where people say, well, I've, 
I went and I used my uh, female invitation howl and I called this coyote. Well, I think a lot of times that's just a label on it. But but even if it was recorded from uh, a, a coyote in heat, if you just scroll through your remote and find a female invitation, I don't care what library it's from, my library or anybody else's, and you hit it and it plays through the one sequence or whatever the sound loop is, if it just plays through that, you know, 10 second, 30 second, 50 second loop, then you've done a lone howl. You've done a, a lone howl. That's it. It wouldn't have mattered. Doesn't matter that she was in heat. You just did a lone howl. It's the same as if she wasn't in heat. Now, to turn that into a, a true female invitation howl, let it keep playing. Or if you have multiple, you know, like the way that I did mine, I was recording uh, Little B. It's probably the best example that I've got of it. Uh, she she was in heat, and she's howling all night long. And I stayed out there and recorded and recorded and recorded. And she would do a series of howls, and then she would just would be any time. She'd go right back into another series of howls. She did that over and over. So if you look at, at my library, you'll have sexy little bee, hot little bee, little bee ready howls, little bee lonely howls. Those are four segments of howls that she did during that that night where she's howling over and over again while she's in heat. So when I want to do a female imitation howl, a true female imitation howl, I'll pick any one of those four sounds. I'll play one of them. Wait. You can go right into the next one or wait, you know, just a few seconds, 10 seconds, 30 seconds, whatever. But I will continue to play those howls. And I'll run through all four of those to mimic that coat that's in heat that howls over and over and over again. If I just pick one of them, even though she's in heat and I go to to Sexy Little B and I play Sexy Little B one series through, it wouldn't be any different than me picking one of her howls when she's not in heat and letting it run one sequence through because they sound very similar. They're not putting any anything into those female invitation howls that sound different than their lone howls other than the repetition that they do them. Okay. So that, that's some pretty good information that I yeah. learned about, you know, how to do a, a true breeding stand and incorporate female invitation uh, sounds into that. Because I don't think, uh, I know I didn't know it prior to. I would just see female invitation on my remote and play through it one time. And I thought I had done a, uh, a female invitation. And mm -hmm. it really, well, I, I guess it depends on how you look at it. You did a real short, uh, it wasn't much <laughs> of an invite. <laughs> right. You did a hey instead of starting a whole conversation. That's right. Yep. Um, Next question I have for you. This one is, again, kind of a technical question, but um, let me give you a scenario and you tell me what your best practice would be in dealing with this scenario. I actually had this one just this past weekend. Um, you get out to a spot, you know there's coyotes in the area, you let out a howl, you get a response, and the response isn't that far away. But again, I'm in Michigan and we're hunting some thick cover. It's going to be similar to what you have in some of the areas, but you never see those coyotes show up. What would be your next move in that situation? So, so you've, you've just howled, they've answered you and you've sat there for a period of time and they haven't shown up or have you right. gone into the towns? 
Um, so when I did that, I let out a howl. They replied. They were in. Uh, there's a like a ravine on the backside of the creek, and it sounded like they were in there. They responded back. It sounded like at least a pair. Um, then I went silent because a lot of times that's what I do, and you know they'll come in. They didn't come in. I howled again later. They replied again, same spot. They're not moving from that spot. Yeah, in that scenario, typically the way I do it is just like what you're talking about. I'll howl if they howl back, depending on how far they are and how what I think my my odds are. Usually, when they howl back, if I think I can gain ground on them, even if it's not much ground. If I think I can gain ground on them, then I will sit there for about five minutes after that first aisle in silence. And if nothing answers, then I'll gain that ground, whatever I think I can gain without busting them. Get closer to them. Get closer to them before, and then I'll go right back to a howl. Okay. In the scenario you described, you know, where you howl, you give them some time, you howl again a little later on, they howl back and they're in the same spot. Then I'm definitely, you know, Gonna, I'm going to wait a few minutes, make sure that howl didn't trigger them to come in, and then I'm going to try to gain some ground on them. Once I get as close as I think I can possibly get, and I've howled again, and, and they've answered, and they're in the same spot, but they still don't show up, but I don't think I can gain any more ground on them, that's when I'm going to start you know, going through my other sounds and try to get them triggered. You know, and, and that that would involve, you know, multiple different sounds, mm -hmm. uh, partly depending on time of the year is what I went with first. But um, the, moving closer to them, but that's the first thing I do most, especially when I'm when I'm trying to kill coyotes. I mean, most of the time the video camera is the focus. So there's sometimes where I know that I can move closer that I don't move closer because I have a camera with me. But if I'm, if I'm a guy trying to kill coyotes and I feel like I can gain ground and i this is something else that I learned. I learned a lot of it from hunting prior to getting the coyotes because I was already howling in a lot of coyotes and moving closer was something that I did. Uh, but I got to see that the reasons why fooling with, with these coyotes that, that I just let run loose. So a unique thing about that, that that lets me see the couch point of view on a lot of that is I can set my call wherever I want to, and I can be with the coats. And so they're just doing their thing. They may be laying around, playing, bowling, whatever. And I can sit there with them with the remote and then hit those howls or whatever the sound is and watch their reaction to it. And then also have somebody like, you know, my wife or whatever, manipulate the situation by moving the call towards those coyotes if they don't respond. And, I, and I've, so I've got to see what that does to them at different distances. So a lot of times if if I'm outside recording coyotes and neighboring wild coyotes howl, a lot of times if they're a certain distance away from them, they won't even howl back. They don't even acknowledge them. But one night in particular, it was, I think it was actually the same night that I was recording those uh, little bee howls. Some, a group of wild coats howled in the distance. She was howling nonstop. Um, but the rest of the coats were not, uh, my coats were not vocalizing very much. Anyway, those wild coats moved closer 
it was probably, you know, 20 minutes later or however long. It was a period of time later. But they, they were across the road from my house in behind a cow pasture, and they ended up moving. Now, I don't know 100% that it was the same cows, but I think it was. They ended up coming out of that pasture into a cow pasture across the road, which put them, you know, probably four or 500 yards closer uh, to me. And when they howled again, that tree, they were too close for comfort. And that triggered my codes. And so I've got to see things like that, not only using the call, but also witness it with how they react to actual coats howling and changing distances and, you know, how close they are. That's a lot of times when you'll get those challenge howls. I've recorded challenge howls where they're responding to strange coats howling too close for comfort and it'll get them really worked up and agitated uh, when that distance changes. And with the call, you know, you get it too close for comfort. A lot of times that's when they'll actually go to it. You know, they'll go ahead and break and go to the call. Now, when that happens, does the whole group move or is it only one or two? It A lot of that depends on time of the year. So when it's okay. summertime and family group related, a lot of times the whole group, if they're together, will break and, and go to it. Uh, and also, some of it has to do with cow personalities. I think that there are some cows that are not very callable, period. Mm-hmm. I don't care what you do, because you'll have some of them. Little B, is an, I keep using her as an example, but she's a, she's actually one of the dominant females, but she's very suspicious and skittish, and she doesn't respond well to a lot. She's the last cow just about every time that, shows interest some of them will run over the call mm-hmm. and heart chargers you know they would typically be called other coats are more standoffish so she's going she's more apt to slow methodical circle she's going to circle that call get the win and i think you have wild coats out there that just have different personalities that react and trigger on sounds different ways sure. some of those coats are you know those hard chargers we're going to kill those pretty easy. Right. Those that act like little B, those are the ones that are a lot of times going to circle and wind us and then be even harder to call up later on. So you, there's a variety of, of responses as to, and sometimes you'll have, I've been out there on different days where I'm looking at three or four of my goats and you'll hit a particular sound and one of them will jump up and take off to the call and the other ones will hang back. And then there's been other times where it's those same four coats on a different day, different sound, maybe, or it may be the same sound. I can't remember specifically, but where all four coats will trigger and go towards the call. So hmm. it's just just like uh just like everything else, you catch them on on a different day in a different mood, and they all have different personalities, you'll get different reactions out of them. There's sure. there's definitely there's no there's not an always response or a never with with the coats. They just you got to catch them, you know, in in whatever mood or personality they're in, and you can get, you know, a, a different outcome for those reasons. You know? Do you think there's ever a trigger for that? Like, you know, a lot of guys, myself included, have noticed better activity with barometric pressure changes. Do you think there's the, anything to that? 
I've spent, I, I used to spend a lot of time fooling with moon phase and barometric pressure and different weather stuff and writing this stuff down and trying to track it and get an edge on a lot of different animals, deer, uh, coyotes. I, I think that there's probably something to uh, some of that, mm. to what degree and, and to make any of it reliable. I've never been able to really put it down to where I can say, okay, I know that this is going to trigger coats uh, in a positive way or a negative way uh, enough to, to make it predictable. Okay. Um, I have watched, I was actually talking about the, this same topic earlier today, not the barometric pressure, but just coat moods. So you'll have, and I've compared this with moon phase and barometric pressure. So on some days, the coats are, just full of energy and they're howling, they're making noise, they're fighting, playing, carrying on. They're just real energetic, nonstop action. And for no, I mean, and there's no obvious reason for it. There's no stimulus there. And, the, you know, the weather, everything seems to be the same as the following day. Pressures, moon phase, all that stuff is very similar weather conditions, wind, temperature, very similar. And the next day they're laying around and you can't hardly get them to howl. And there's, you know, I can't put my finger on why, you know, I do think that probably if you're having drastic swings and some of that stuff, that it, it may factor in. But as far as ever be, I wish I could. I wish I could figure <laughs> it out. I'd be putting out information and, and making a few extra dollars on predicting coat movement and as it relates to barometric pressure or moon phase or something. But right. I, I never have been able to uh, to pin anything down. Uh, do y'all, do you see anything that, that you think is a I consistent would, predictor? I would Again, you know, I mean, it's just like it, anything that we tell people, like when you're coyote hunting is anytime you think you haven't figured out, they'll do something that'll just completely throw <laughs> off your plan. So yes and no. I mean, I've been keeping a log of my, for the past three, four years, I was keeping a log of every stand I made. I recorded moon phase, barometric pressure, vocals, seen them, how many I shot killed etc then i started just recording in my log my successes the only thing i've really noticed is i would say i get more activity when the barometric pressure is like 30 plus to a certain right. degree whereas other nights where the pressure is lower i'll have less success not saying i don't have success but it just seems like there's less activity um, right. where the higher the pressure tends to be a little bit more activity. That's the only thing I could really say. Yeah. Um, I know a lot of guys talk to a lot about like hunting on a full moon. Oh, you can't kill them on a full moon. Well, I, I know for a fact you can, does that mean they're always as active or less active? No, but it can be done. Right. That's about, that's about the only thing I can say about it. Yeah. And I think with the full moon and the hunting side of it, I think, maybe some of that factors into how well you're able to hide from them, what you can get away with on a dark night versus a, a right. bright night. And I'm not a night hunter, so I don't, you know, I've been, I've done it. I've done a, a fair amount of it here and there, but uh, I don't talk about the night hunting stuff a whole lot. 
but from a cow behavior, you know, full moon versus a dark moon, they're active in all phases of the moon. I mean, I do a lot of my recording at night and, you know, I've, I've seen, I've, I've seen high activity and low activity on all types of moon phases and stuff like that. I do think, I do think drastic weather changes, regardless of the animal, uh, affects them. So mm-hmm. regardless of what that is, anything that's a big change outside of the norm. So if you have really extreme temperature changes, whether that's getting hotter than normal or a lot colder, and, and I'm when I say extreme, I'm talking about way outside the norm that happens fast. Mm-hmm. I think all of that shuts animal activity down or suppresses it right off the bat, you'll hear people especially talking about deer hunting. If you have a big cold snap come through, that's a major, you know, drastic change. I, I don't see the movement pick up when that happens. It's usually a day or two after. Mm-hmm. And with the coats, um, anytime it snows down here, which is not very often, but when it gets cold and, and snow hits the ground, that's going to shut everything down. When that mm-hmm. snow first hits the ground, now if that snow stays on the ground a day or even two days, especially two days, I'm fixing to hunt on that second day. For well, I'll hunt all three days, but that yeah. second day, I'm going to make sure that I'm out there because I typically see as that stuff starts to stabilize after those fronts and stuff come through, as it starts to kind of stabilize, I think you have a, you know, that big storm change suppresses and that swing back towards stable conditions i think it uh that's that's usually a good time to be out there sure they got they have have cabin fever now they want to get out and go (laughs) i think that's got a lot to do with it it'll 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 shut them down when it first comes through i used to always anytime that snow or a big weather front was coming in the day of I, i would deer hunt and all whatever uh, all different kinds of animals and a lot of times they were pitiful days you know where you saw very little and didn't have much success but uh those couple days after it after it passes i like those days if you got time i got one more question for you okay okay so based on what i've seen from your videos and talking to you and all that some of your um environment that you're hunting in is real similar to what a lot of the ground I hunt here in Michigan meaning it's really thick there's some thick cover you got woods um and one thing I always noticed about your videos is you're getting in the woods with them and you're moving up close to them how do you do that based on the distance like in the summertime when the ground is so noisy like, do you have a distance that you say, okay, I want to get within, let's say, 200 yards? I think 200 yards would be too close. I mean, how does that, how, what's your take on that? Because that's one thing we see here, especially if it's been dry for a while, it's so noisy to walk through the woods to try and get to where you think they are. And that's my concern is always just making way too much noise to get close to them, especially if you have a calm day, there's no wind, the ground is crunchy. What's your take on that? Yeah, it used to really make me, you know, I used to 
just like what you're talking about, it made me nervous about trying to get any closer. And then just from trial and error of setting up and the coach still not coming and us getting to the point to where we're like, all right, we're going to move in on them anyway. And if we bust them, we bust them. And I realized that I could get by with a lot more noise than I thought I could. And I've done it in multiple states to where, you know, I try to be as quiet as I possibly can, but with turkeys and coats and other stuff, and even watching my coats when something's making noise, if it's out of their sight and they can't smell it, a lot of times they listen to it, but if they pick up on it, but it doesn't necessarily blow them out of there, you know, at, unless you start getting way too close for comfort. Mm-hmm. So I just, I always go about it by making as little noise as I possibly can, but still get to those. And I, you know, if it's extremely bad and it's thick and you're just having to tear through stuff to get there, then that may shut me down and make me, you know, try to call them up maybe a little sooner than I, than I want to, mm-hmm. you know, I may not be able to get quite as close because it's so thick. And a lot of times I'm playing it also based on, on my visual. So if I howl and the coyotes are four or 500 yards away and I know I can get closer, but we're in a super thick and I call it briars and bullshit because mm-hmm. it's just so much crap in there. And I start easing that direction well, I, I may want to try to get to 200 yards or, or whatever I think I can get to, but it's so thick in there that I'm just not seeing any holes and I get to 275 yards and there's a little opening that I can sit down in and, and looks decent, then I will go ahead and sit down because we may not get another opening between us and the goats. And, right. and that'll mess us up too to, go to where we just have zero visibility. Uh, so there are a lot of factors that come in into that. So on the noise deal, I'll get as close as I think I possibly can. And if it's just getting to where I'm thinking, man, they've got to be, I'm, I'm fixing to bust them, then I'll go ahead and try to try to make a stand. And if they don't show up, but they howl back, and you know, they're still there. Or even if they don't howl back, they don't come in. And I know I still had distance to gain. I'll go ahead and press it a little bit and, you know, so it's not always going to work out. Sometimes right. they are going to hear you. They are going to bust you. You're going to – it's just that risk. I always do it risk versus reward and get as close as I think I can and try it. And if they don't show up, I'm going to push it a little more. And, you know, you either kill them or you bust them. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, uh, right, I well, usually make it that far. Right. All right. Well, thank you very much. I know we've went a little bit longer than what we had planned on, but I really appreciate it. Um, yeah. For the end here, uh, tell people where they can find out about you and MFK. Well, pretty much everything, YouTube, uh, website, all of that stuff is going to be under MFK Game Calls. And then personal stuff, just under Tory Cook. But 90% of my stuff will be under MFKGameCalls.com and then MFK Game Calls on uh, YouTube, Instagram, all that kind of stuff, Facebook. And I that. I definitely recommend for all the listeners out there watching some of the videos on YouTube, especially because Tori has done a really good job and his crew of breaking down on different seasons how the coyote's life is. Uh, those have been some really good videos. Not only that, but all their hunts and everything else. So make sure to check them out. And uh, once again, thank you very much, Tori. I enjoyed it. Appreciate you having me on.
All right, everybody, thank you for joining us. Please feel free to subscribe and share this, and we will catch you again next week on the Overdrive Outdoors podcast. <laughs>